Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. Good morning. Pray you've had a good week since Easter, and it's now good to gather and to hear from God and his word together. And if you are new here or newer here, we do want to say again, we're so glad that you have joined us this morning at ECC. So as a church, since I've been your senior pastor here for the last few months, as a church, now we have gone through our six-week sermon series that was entitled Being a Jesus-Centered Church. And then last week with Good Friday and Easter, we focused on the cross and the resurrection of our Lord. And now this week, we begin a new sermon series. And for this, we're going to be going verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Philippians. And specifically, as you can see in your bulletin there on the last page, our sermon series is entitled Philippians, Joy and Unity in the Gospel of Christ. And the reason for this is because there's really two dominant themes that we're going to see throughout this letter, joy and unity, which both are going to stem from this one overarching focus, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these three things, joy, unity, and the gospel, are the reason why I chose this as the letter for us to go through as a church. Because as we'll see, there's going to be a resounding amount of joy throughout this whole entire letter. But what's special about this joy we're going to see is it's not some flippant and shallow just glee or joy, but it's a deep-seated joy and contentment in Christ. So that's the joy. But then along with joy, we're also going to see this common thread of unity throughout. And what's interesting about this is historically it's good for us to know that the church at Philippi wasn't necessarily a very divided church. Instead, it seems what Paul is doing is he's writing to a church that already has unity and he's making sure that they keep that unity up and they continue to grow on it. And then finally, as we already said, we're going to see that this is joy and unity in the gospel. Because what we're going to see throughout this letter is this letter, like the whole Bible, isn't just about principles and applications, but mainly it's about a person, about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And so joy, unity, and the gospel. So that's why we chose this book. And it's my prayer for us as a church as we go through Philippians. And I do encourage you that you please pray along with me. Let's pray for these three things as we go through this book verse by verse. Let our prayer be that as we go through Philippians that we grow in joy. Individually in joy with Jesus, but also a joyful church. Let's pray that we become more of a unified church. Not because we don't have unity, but because we can have even more unity in Christ. Then, of course, let's pray that we become people who love and know even more the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. So that's Philippians. That's what we're about to get into. And we're going to be doing this again by going verse by verse through this book. Every single verse. And to be honest, it's going to take a few months to do this few months. Our, our goal will probably be to finish by the end of the summer, the early fall, but we'll see. So it will take some time. But as a so, short side note on this, I want to explain just briefly why I think this is so important for us to do, to go verse by verse by verse through a book. And I say this because thus far as a church since I've been here as your senior pastor, we've been doing mainly topical messages, which is fine. We, we're still in the Bible, so because I don't want you to hear anything uh, that isn't from me, so we've still been in the Bible, but we've been kind of choosing the topic and then finding verses for that. But there is a reason why, ever since the Reformation especially, and this call back to the Word of God, there's a reason why churches have mainly just gone verse by verse through books of the Bible. 
And the reason is that as we now go through Philippians, it's not going to be me or any one of us choosing the topics that we're covering. Instead, when you go verse by verse through a book, we're now going to let God determine the topics for us each and every week. And that's why expository preaching, as it's been called, that's what we'll be doing, is so important for us as a church. It's fine, and there's a place sometimes for us to choose topics and then go to the Bible and try to see what the Bible says about that. But overall, remember, we believe that God speaks here. And he speaks in each paragraph and sentence in the way they're ordered. And so going verse by verse, week in and week out for these next few months, is going to allow us to be confronted and challenged and encouraged by things that maybe we wouldn't have seen if we or I or any one of us chose the topics. So that's why we'll be doing expository preaching. So that's that. Now let's go finally to Philippians. Philippians. So our verses are going to be verses 1 through 6 this morning, but since it is our first week in this letter, we'll begin with a little background on Philippi and the setting of the letter, because it'll really help us understand what we're getting into. So if you're interested to begin, as for the city of Philippi, which this letter is written to, Philippi was a Roman colony that was situated in this really important place between, uh, on the road that stretched from all the way from Rome to the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. So it was on that major road. And being so, it was a pretty prosperous city. It was a pretty well-known city, and it happened to be a military town as well. Then as for this letter itself, the letter to the church at Philippi, the Philippians, it was written by Paul. And as you might know, if you know the book of Acts, Paul himself in Acts 16 was imprisoned at Philippi, and he's the one who founded this church. So this, this church and this people were really important to him. He knew them well. And then as for the Philippian church, what's interesting is most scholars will point out, and this is definitely true, that the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica, these two churches were clearly the churches that Paul was, if you want to say, happiest with. He had, the, he had the least to confront them about. The letter, you're going to see that, is filled with just a lot of joy and thanks and encouragement. That being said, there still was some things he thought needed to be addressed, but overall this letter exists because Paul just wanted to update this church. He loved this church and let them know what was going on. And then finally, speaking of Paul and what was going on with him, perhaps the most important contextual thing for us to know now as we go into the book and you might know this, is that Paul is writing this whole letter from prison. From prison. And the reason that's so important for us to know is because it's then, we've got to realize from prison, that Paul writes this letter that's so much about joy, that's so much about unity and encouragement in the gospel. So that's the context of our letter, which finally brings us to Philippians 1. As we said, we'll be in Philippians 1, 1 through 6. And if you look down at your Bible, you can see that 1, 1 through 11 is a typical intro of an ancient letter. You see that there? Paul greets them, and then he prays for them. And so we're going to cover this whole intro in two weeks, verses 1 through 6 this week, verses 7 through 11 next week. But as for this morning, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the Apostle Paul address two main topics to start. Two main topics, and we'll set these up with two questions. And these questions will be an outline of our time this morning. So the first question that we're going to ask, that we're going to see Paul address, is who are we? It's that simple. Who are we? Who are we as believers? Who, was, who were the Philippian church? And who are we as a church? And we'll see Paul address that. 
which will then lead to our second question, which will be, and what does God promise us? Who are we and what does God promise us? Those are going to be our two questions now as we go through Philippians 1 through 6. And again, we're going to see how that applied to the Philippian church, of course. But also we're going to see, since it's God's word for us today, how it applies to us. So that said, let's begin with our question, who are we? And for this, we're just going to start in verse 1. Verse 1. So look down at your Bible. Here we go, church. We're beginning the letter to the Philippians. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So right away, we see two answers to our question right there at the beginning of verse 1. And they're simple, but they're pretty helpful for us too. So who are we? Notice it's Paul and Timothy writing, but what do they call themselves? Servants of Christ Jesus. Servants. And as we know, this is Paul and Timothy saying that, but if this is true of the Apostle Paul, it's equally true of us. And the idea here is that Christ is the master, the Lord, and we are his servants. And so that's the first thing right off the bat in the first sentence. Who are we? We're servants. And to be clear, this is a good thing, brothers and sisters, that we're servants of Christ. Because as Paul teaches elsewhere in the Bible teaches, you and I will be a servant or bond servant. This word is just the Roman word for Roman slave. We will be a servant or slave of something. It's just how we work. It's our nature. We cling to and follow something. Now, whether those things or that something is a sinful thing or a really selfish thing or something else, we naturally are just going to fall underneath whatever we want that's going to guide us and influence us and control us. An important point to think about this is even those who claim to be their own masters and not be servants of anything really are just servants of their own wishes and desires and, and passions. And so the Bible is very clear. We're all servants of something. And so the Bible, though, by calling us servants of Christ Jesus, what it's saying is it's us Christians, though, who say happily, yeah, my life isn't my own. And I'm not a slave to my own passions or sins or just desires or my own way of doing things. Instead, I happily am a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. So that's the first thing. We're servants of Christ. But then the same verse, you see another thing. Who are we? We're servants and then to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So who are we? We're servants and now we're saints. And this is helpful too. It's one of Paul's main ways of talking about Christians in the Bible. We're saints. We're saints. And on this, this is where some traditions, especially the Roman Catholic tradition, have been or are honestly very unhelpful when it comes to understanding the Bible. Because if you're here and you hear the word saint, mainly as somebody who's super holy or super, or, or canonized as they call it, that's not what the word originally meant. Instead, clearly what the word means in the Bible is that it just means somebody who's set apart. Somebody who's holy. That's all it means. And notice, this is to the church at Philippi and it's to all the saints who are at Philippi. And so this is for everyone who's in Philippi in this church and everyone is a saint. And that's true for us too. Who are we? Let me tell you with 100% clarity and biblical support that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are a saint according to the Bible. Now not because, let's be very clear, not because you are uniquely pure and better than everybody else, not at all. 
but because to be a saint means that you are set apart, holy by God for a purpose. So who are we? We're servants and we're saints, but we're still not even done with verse one. And I promise we won't go this slowly through the whole book. So who are we? We're servants and saints, but now, even in verse one, in that second paragraph there, Paul decides to give even a little bit of hint of the structure of the church at Philippi, of who they are. So we're gonna read verse one again, just so we see it. So we'll read the whole verse again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So notice, servants, saints, but then there's that hint of how the church at Philippi is structured. And this is something Paul mentions really just in passing there, just as he's addressing them, because he knows this is how they're structured. And we can even assume, and rightly so, that since he founded this church, that the Apostle Paul set this church up this way as he teaches to do elsewhere in the New Testament with this structure. And the structure is threefold. It's a really helpful verse because you see whole church structure in one verse. See it for yourself in verse one. First, there are the saints at Philippi, right? We already talked about that. That's everybody. That would be the congregation. They're saints in a specific place at Philippi. So they're a congregation of believers at a place just like we're a congregation of believers at a place here in Stanford. So that's first. But then second, you see it there in verse one, that there's overseers. Overseers. In Greek, this is just the word episkopos, from where we get that English word episcopal. But literally, it's just someone who sees over, and, or the other word you could use is somebody who manages. And elsewhere, these overseers, that word is interchangeably used with elder and pastor. We go elsewhere to prove this, but everyone agrees that this is one position, elder, pastor, overseer. An elder is a pastor, is an overseer. And these three terms are helpful, to de- are helpful to describe this position in the church. Overseer, that word emphasizes the idea of managing and watching over. Elder emphasizes, it's just the word for old one. And it emphasizes somebody who's mature and therefore able to teach and be an example. And then pastor is just the Greek word for shepherd. So it's just somebody who shepherds a flock. So we have the congregation. You have this position of manager, pastor, elder. And then there's that third term in verse 1, the overseers and deacons. And again, he's just assuming this because this is church structure, ancient church structure. And again, this is another good example where we just take the Greek word and make an English word out of it. Because the Greek word here, you know it, is just diakonos. Just the word diakonos. But literally, that is just the Greek word for servant. It's just the Greek word for servant. And aside, I know this is a lot, and aside on all of this though, in case you're wondering at a place like this, some of the difficulty sometimes in trying to understand the Bible in English is because Honestly, sometimes it's pretty random that sometimes we translate the Greek word into English, like episkopos to overseer, and sometimes we don't, and we just make a new English word. For example, none of us, again, in evangelicalism will probably talk about episkopos and talk about episcopals. Instead, we'll use the word overseer. Also in evangelicalism, not many of us use the word presbytos, but presbytos is just the Greek word for elder. The Presbyterians might use that word, right? Because for some reason they've taken that and made it into English. But in reality, presbytos is just the word for older one. And yet, 
For some reason, we as a church and evangelicalism, and it's okay, have kept the Greek word here. We, for some reason, we keep the Greek word for servant and make it deacon. And that's fine, but it's just the word servant. It's just the word servant. Just like, uh, just like episkopos is one, who's, uh, one who rules, presbytos is one who's older, diakonos is one who serves. So the reason we say all of that, the reason we say all of that, it's because you see it there in verse 1. Because when the Philippian church, this is helpful, 2,000 years ago, was being addressed by Paul and set up by Paul, they would have read this in their own language, of course, and they would have heard, to all the set-apart ones at Philippi, with those who manage and those who serve. To all the set-apart ones in Philippi, with those who manage and those who serve. We can make it more complicated than that, but that's what they would have heard. And that's who we are as a church too. That's who we are to be as a church. So the Bible just assumes this. First, there is the congregation. The, the set apart ones. All of us in a specific place together. We are a church, an assembly. And then second, there are those who oversee, manage, and shepherd. And then third, there are to be those who serve, who are set apart to serve. And so that's the structure that God has set up here in Philippians 1 and elsewhere for our good. God always sets up things for our good. So who are we? I know this is a lot. If you're tracking, we're just done with verse 1. We've seen we're servants, we're saints in a congregation with those who manage and oversee and those who serve. And more could be said on all of those things. But instead of just elaborating where we want to, I want to now go to where Paul then decides to go. So he gives his greeting in verse 2. We'll come back to that. But then notice what he says in verses 3 through 5. And we can set it up this way. So that's who we are. But now the question becomes, okay, but what's our purpose? Why are we who we are? And this is where Paul is going to get to in verses 3 through 5. So let's read those now. It's Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul's praying. You see that in verses three and four, he gives thanks to God for them with joy. Here's our first example of that joy in this letter. But then in verse five, he gives the reason why he prays for them with such thanks and joy. Where is his joy coming from? Why does he have it? And out of everything, honestly, we've talked about who we are so far in this point, if there's one thing I, I would love for us at ECC to start to embrace as a church together, it's what Paul says in verse five. See it for yourself. He's so thankful for them and has such joy in them because they're partners in the gospel. They're partners in the gospel because of their partnership in the gospel. See it again, verse three, he prays. Verse four, his prayer is with joy. Why? Verse five, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I hope that becomes truer and truer of us here at ECC in this congregation. And here's why this idea of partnership in the gospel is so helpful. Because this is another word, and we're not gonna be talking about Greek this much as we go throughout. This is another word that I'm sure you know because it's become really popular in evangelicalism for some reason. And it's the word koinonia. That's this word, partnership, koinonia. And this word can rightly be translated in two ways. I'm sure you know them. The first we're familiar with, it can be fellowship. So it could have been translated because of your fellowship in the gospel. 
And that aspect of the Greek word koinonia emphasizes this togetherness, this camaraderie and unity and friendship. And that's why we have fellowship times where we're trying to build relationships. That's why we even have a fellowship hall, right? Because we want us to be a people who are united in friendship. And so Paul is talking about his friendship he has with them. That's true. So that's one option for koinonia, fellowship. But notice the ESV, if you're reading the ESV, chooses the other option for the word. I think it does so for a good reason, and that's the word partnership, being partners. I think that's what, that fits a little better what Paul's talking about, because a partnership emphasizes, as you know, some sort of unified purpose and unified goal and support of a group, like, like working together as a business for a goal, for a purpose. And again, koinonia can therefore mean fellowship and partnership. And so here's why this is so applicable to us. This is what a church is as well. And this is who we are here at ECC. Yes, we're individually underneath Christ. We're servants. Yes, all of us are set apart saints. Yes, we're ordered and structured in a certain way. But why? What's really going on here? Why are we saved? Why are we ordered this way? What unifies us? We're all partners in the gospel. In this message about Jesus Christ that we love, that has saved us. In this message that we know that the world so desperately needs. And so that's how I hope we start seeing ourselves as a church. We have fellowship with each other. Amen. We should build that up, that camaraderie. But also we are partners in the gospel. And speaking of unity, I mean, this, this above all is what unites us and will unite us more than anything else. Because although we may have differences and distinctions and different backgrounds and histories and ages and ethnicities and preferences and opinions, all of that stuff, we're partners in the gospel. And all of that just doesn't compare to the unity we have because we all so love and embrace the same message. We're partners in this gospel. So that's all our answer to our first question. Who are we? Who are we? Well, we saw in verse 1 and verses 3 and 5, we're servants, we're saints, we're ordered in a certain way, and we're partners in the gospel. But now let's transition to our second question. Our second question is, okay, so that's who we are, but now what is God doing about it? Or what has God promised us? And we ask this again because this is the topic Paul brings up right away in his letter. And for this, we're going to look at the two verses we haven't talked about yet, and that's verses 2 and 6. So we'll start with just verse 2. So we're asking, what has God promised us? Let's read verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first answer to our question, what has God promised to give us, what has God promised us, comes from that verse there, that often, let's be honest, is just overlooked. Because grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is Paul's typical greeting. <laughs> it says that in the beginning of every letter. But what we're promised there is grace and peace. Grace and peace. And here's a good example of sometimes we read the Bible and we hear something so many times that we overlook it. But these words have a lot of weight to them. Or think about it another way. There's a reason why Paul made this his typical greeting. These are not just throwaway words. First, think of grace. 
Why start every letter with grace to you? Well, apparently, and this is interesting, Paul thinks that as we're now reading the Bible and reading this letter to the Philippians, that God's going to be pouring out grace to us. That's why I don't know if you've ever noticed, but Paul starts all of his letters with grace to you, and then he ends the letters with grace be with you. And the idea is as we read the Bible, grace is coming to us, and then as we finish closing our Bibles and reading, the prayer is that God's grace may be with us. So that's grace. We need that. God treating us better than we deserve. But that's not it. He also is grace to you and peace. This is important too. To begin, of course, this is inward peace. This is peace with God and the gospel. But also, think about peace. In the Jewish context, because Paul's a Jew and you know, most of the early Christians were Jews and the Old Testament Jewish. And also think of peace in the Roman context that they lived in. It's interesting. First, in terms of the uh, Jewish context, as you might know, peace was a crucially important word in the Old Testament. It's the word shalom. Shalom. And the word does mean peace. We can translate it that way. But it's much bigger than just inward okayness. Everything's okay. Instead, shalom is this. All is well. With you, with you and God, with you and others, with the whole world. That's what the word shalom means, that peace. And that was the promise and the hope of God all throughout the Old Testament. That he would bring finally shalom. And so Paul, the Jew, understands that this has now come in Jesus Christ. This shalom to those of us who know and trust Jesus and are saved. And the shalom is coming to this world one day, finally, and forever. So now you can feel the weight of, okay, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then also think about this in the Roman context. In the Roman context, because this is, they lived in the Roman Empire. And as you might know, it was during this time that Rome had the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. This period where Rome had conquered so much land, and so they said that this is the Pax Romana. This is, this is unmatched peace. No one can match the peace that Rome offers. Peace between nations, peace between our citizens. But according to Paul and Christians in our Bible here, it's actually God and Jesus in this gospel that gives us a way better peace. A way better peace than the Roman peace. And so now you can feel the full sense of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is grace that we need, and this is peace. Yes, true inward peace, peace with God, but also shalom, and also a better peace than Rome or America or any country could ever give us. Peace. So that's what we're promised as Christians. Grace and peace in verse 2. But now we get to that really famous verse 6. It's a beautiful promise. So let's read verse 6, our final verse of the morning. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we're God's servants, we're saints who continually receive grace and peace, we're partners in the gospel, and all of that is kind of big stuff. It's a big calling, a big purpose, a big reason to be alive, and that's why I think Paul immediately goes and gives the Philippians a big promise in verse 6 about it all. And that's simply that the God, the one who started all of this, is also the one who's going to complete it. 
And here's why this promise is sweet. The promise is sweet because it takes everything we've talked about thus far, our calling in Christ, our salvation, our partnership in the gospel, and it takes everything that's gonna come in the rest of this letter and it directs our focus to God. And specifically in how the Bible says he's the one who started all of this. And since he's the one who started it, he will complete it. And this is encouraging because this means that our ultimate hope doesn't rest now in how good we, as those servants and saints, properly steward our calling. Nor does it rest on how good now that we're saved we live our lives. No, no, no. Our hope rests on him. He who began all this, the Bible promises, he's the one who's also going to complete it. So that's what God has promised us. God will complete what he started. I hope we feel the beauty of this here at ECC this morning. Because, because if you're a Christian, this means that your hope that you will stay a Christian till the end. Your hope that you will continue to love Jesus and fight sin and trust the gospel doesn't lie, doesn't rest in your own willpower, in your own ability to grit it out or your own perseverance. Your hope rests in him. I mean, in God, the Bible says very clearly that if you're a Christian, God started this in you. He's the one who saved you. The Bible's even clear. He's the one who gave you your faith. So all of this is his work. All of it is his grace. It's all grace. And, and that being so, the promise is since he started it, he also will bring it to completion. And so it's a beautiful promise. And I do, this is a good example. Philippians is full of verses like this. This could be one that you memorize that you quote to yourself when you're discouraged. Your hope doesn't rest in you. It hopes in him who started it. He will bring it to completion. But that finally leads us to the last thing we'll consider in verse six. So God started it. He'll complete it. But have you ever noticed, maybe you know this verse, have you ever noticed when he'll complete it? It's, it's honestly a little strange at first. But Paul writes it, because we might think he'd say, because we kind of talk like this, we might think God started this in you and he'll complete it when you go home to Jesus. Right, but that makes sense, but that's not what the Bible says. Instead, Paul intentionally writes, he'll bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Meaning, when Jesus returns, that's apparently when our salvation will be completed. And this is actually quite helpful too because it shows that our ultimate salvation and deliverance is not just when we die, but it's actually when Jesus returns to this earth. Because think of it this way. Jesus didn't come merely to just save us from our sins, as beautiful as that is. And, And if you do trust in Jesus, you are saved from your sins, past tense, that's true. But he also came so that one day he would come back and fully and forever deliver us, rescue his people, and land them safely on this earth forever. That's the final deliverance. And so in that sense, we won't be fully saved, delivered until he comes back. We'll be saved in the future. And so so what Paul is saying here is God began this work of salvation in you. God began it, and he will complete it. And when will he complete it? It will be finally completed when Jesus comes back 
And then finally and forever, you'll of course be done with sin and you'll be living on this planet as you were meant to with God and with one another forever. And this really is our ultimate Christian hope. And this is what God's promising us here. And, and, and again, I think we need to emphasize this because if we're honest, we often take many of the promises of God and make them too small. Too small. We make it just about ourselves and getting to heaven. And as beautiful as that is, that's not our ultimate hope or our ultimate future. For example, there's even believers who are with Jesus in Revelation 6 who are crying out to the Lord asking for him to return. You can read that in Revelation 6.10. They're with Jesus, and yet they're longing for Jesus to return. And so why would they, even in heaven, why would they long for Jesus to return? Because our ultimate hope and salvation and promise from God isn't just to be in the intermediate state where we're with Jesus without bodies in heaven. That's not our ultimate hope. Instead, our final destination and salvation is going to be forever on this earth in resurrected bodies with God and with one another as it was always meant to be, but even better. And so the Bible is saying in verse 6, if you trust in Christ, God has begun that in you now. And he will, it's a promise, he will complete it. And it will bring it to that final consummation when? When Christ returns. When you and I are finally, I mean, believe it because it's true. When you and I are finally on this earth as things are always meant to be in our bodies as they were meant to be without sin. That's our ultimate destination. That's what we're really looking forward to. And so that church is who we are and what we're promised in Philippians 1, 1 through 6. Who we are, servants, saints, ordered in a certain way in our church by God's design, partners in the gospel. And what are we promised as those? We are now promised grace and peace. And above all, we're promised that God who started this is going to bring it to completion. And that final completion is going to be when Jesus comes back. But now as we close, just one more thing I want to show you from this text that we haven't focused on too much. But you may have noticed it yourself. And it's how amazingly Jesus-centered this passage is. I'll show you. Here's a good example of how we often throw terms around like that. You know, Jesus-centered or it's all about Jesus. But I want you to see in these verses that's really the case. So look down. Now that we've gone through this, look again at verse 1. It's not that we're just servants, but specifically we're servants of Jesus. So Jesus is there as the one who leads us and guides us and even controls us. And that's a good thing. Then, look at verse 1, it's not that we're just saints or set apart, but we're set apart in Christ Jesus. So it's because of our relationship with Jesus that we're uniquely distinct and we have a purpose. Then it's not just that we're given grace and peace randomly, but instead in verse 2, notice the grace and peace comes from God and Jesus. So Jesus is our master, he's the one who sets us apart, and now he's the fountain pouring out grace and peace to us. Then look at our partnership in verse 5. It's not just a random partnership, a random business we're in or anything. Instead, it's partnership in the gospel. What we're partners in, what we have fellowship in, is what Jesus has done for us. And then verse 6, it's not just that we have a random hope. Instead, our hope is that it would all be completed when Jesus finally comes back. 
And so you can just see how robustly Jesus centered the Bible in this passage really is. And we're going to see that continually as we go throughout Philippians. He's our master. He's the one who set us apart. He's the one who's giving us grace and peace. His gospel is our purpose and we're waiting for him to come back. And so that's Philippians 1, 1 through 6. And so brothers and sisters, our prayer is that we as ECC may be more and more of these servants and saints and partners in the gospel believing that God's pouring out grace and peace to us and he'll finish what he started and why? We don't deserve that. Why? Because we really have Jesus on our side. Because Jesus really is our Lord. Because Jesus has really saved us and given us a purpose in the gospel. And because when our Jesus returns, God will complete what he started in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.